Food and Beverage Magazine Live, bringing food and beverage to life with your hosts, James Beard Award winner Jennifer English and Food and Beverage Magazine publisher Michael Politz. Featuring leaders in the hospitality, branded food and beverage, and CPG industries, many of whom are Jennifer and Michael's friends in the business. For an informal and informative conversation where friends in the business share the latest intel, ideas, and best practices. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz. Dude, oh, you're the apple of my eye. What is that? Is that Can you nectarine? imagine if Eve had a glorious sweet peach instead of an apple? What would have happened to humankind? Maybe we wouldn't be in the mess we're in right now. And I know we've got a lot of news to talk about today, and there are things happening everywhere, but I figured. If I started us out today reminding us all how grateful we need to be for something as simple as a sweet seasonal peach, that if you can be really present and take a juicy bite. And take a bite, take a bite. Juicy, juicy bite. Take a bite. No, I'm going to save this one because this is actually a perfect peach, and I'm going to turn it into one of my signature salads later with a beautifully ripe tomato. My peach and tomato salad that I adorn with leaves of fresh basil from my garden. I wait months and months between peach seasons for this. I've been waiting a long time for this very peach. Well, you know what they say. What do you mean? They, They say life isn't always a peach. Listen, if I could tell you how delicious this, this smells so peachy delicious. But you've always been sweet as a peach. Let's do peach jokes the whole show. Uh, I'm going to squeeze peach in wherever we can. That's a league of their own. Mm-hmm. There uh, was a baseball team called mm-hmm. the Rockford Peaches. And one of the Rockford Peaches was a woman named Madeline English or Maddie English. And Maddie English's father was the city clerk in Everett, Massachusetts. And me, Peach Jennifer English, is the daughter of the city clerk of Newton, Massachusetts. I had all these strange connections to Maddie English from the League of Their Own's Rockford okay. Beaches. So here we go. I love a League. You know, my friend's in that movie. Oh, yeah? John oh, Lovitz. yeah. Lovitz was in that movie. Mm-hmm. We should have a viewing party with him. Listen, we yeah. have a show, and I and I hope it's going to be one of those wow shows for you. Is it a show and a half? Is it a show and a half? It's a show and a half. That's we how good a, it is. We have a friend. I haven't seen her in many, many years, and she's so big in the industry that I, I think she doesn't tell everyone she knows me. I think she's <laughs> Is that why? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Carol Chin has been doing extraordinary things her entire life and career. She is somebody who embodies everything that all of us in the industry aspire to from her brilliance, which may very well come from the fact that she's uh, got some very substantial credibility and chops in 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 the sort of business side and the creativity side of the hospitality industry. She's worked with and, and been trained by with and have trained some of the best in the business. Um, and among the many things that we're going to celebrate today uh, and the work that we're trying to do and the gifts that we're trying to, you know, wrap up with a bow is this idea mm-hmm. that you have with the launch of your book coming out and the 
time when we're all either closed or ready to open or thinking about reopening or struggling with where we go next, the path forward is not necessarily a clear one. But we have turned to our friends in the business who've had like a, you know, like a, like a, like a track record of showing us what the path forward looks like. Oh, and by the way, the book. Ago, did you say the book? Did you just bring up the book? We love I the did. Book. I did bring up the book. I got a call today. The book is in the warehouse in New Jersey. I love it. It's getting that. shipped this week. It'll be in stores, Barnes & Noble, in two, one or two weeks, they said. Is that exciting? Yes, but you said something that really inspired me in this, which is, what is your hope for people who are operators and entrepreneurs? I want them to go back deep in their soul when they start, how they started and when they had, were fearless and reignite that spark. That's what I want. I want that spark reignite and I want it and I know they can do it. And I know it's scary, but they're going to have to do it, right? That's the way it is. It's scary. Reignite that spark. You had it. Everybody told you not to go into the restaurant business. Everybody told you you're going to fail and you still succeeded and you still did it. But whatever all those negativity burned it off with that spark, let's find it again. It's there. It's there. Carol Chin had that spark when she started the bike conference five years ago. We're celebrating the fifth anniversary of it, but we're also turning to her now because she is the type of inspirational leader who, through her innovative work and her approach, can really mentor us all in this moment to reignite that spark. She joins us now from her test kitchen in the greater Bay Area. Of, oh, no, she's in Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Because <laughs> I always... I have this mental connect in the back of my mind from that marvelous video you sent out about vintage San Francisco's uh, Chinatown many years ago. And I, that was one of my all time favorite social media posts. I'm I'm a native San Franciscan, so no shame in that. How are you? (laughs) I'm really good. It's glad. I'm so honored and glad to be here. Now see people. (laughs) You, you are home. Like so many people take us to the West coast. What's going on in California. We talked to someone in the Napa Valley yesterday, getting a sense of what's going on there. What's going on in LA. So um, we had sort of a whiplash over here um, last. So like us now it'll be two weeks on Friday. We got the green light from the government for restaurants to start reopening. And originally they had been saying July. So a lot of the restaurateurs were kind of caught off guard and were still running grocery stores out of their, you know, dining rooms. And we're like, whoa, whoa, uh, we're not ready. So they all kind of said, let's take a pause. And then in, you know, next week I'll start taking some of the metro shelving out and rearranging my dining room with these new guidelines. Um, and then, that, so that was Friday. We got the green light. Saturday, the rioting started, and citywide curfews were imposed, at least here in Los Angeles and throughout many major areas. So suddenly, they weren't even allowed to do takeout anymore because people couldn't come drive around and pick up food. So they had this like, go, stop, go. <laughs> so um, I think it's really new. Um, not a lot of people have reopened yet. Uh, they were sort of working out schedules and, you know, they got to like fire up the machine again. So um, still a little TBD. Some of the early people have been, you know, in, already up and running and now have new safety procedures. They've got, you know, the servers wearing masks. In addition to the this kind of mask, they've got face shields, I should say. They've got um, either maybe a difference in the way they serve. One restaurant puts out butcher paper, uh, butcher paper on the table as soon as you sit down. Um, a lot of disposable menus, things like that. So it's, they're, you know, I'm really admire the ones who. Hey, Jimmy. 
thought it all through. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot. The, the extraordinary Jimmy Vigilante uh, is checking in with us. Thank you. You know, I love the idea of the butcher paper. I would feel so much more comfortable if every place I went had butcher paper down or something that I knew was fresh to the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So the other one I saw, um, they have a, like a beverage cart that they sort of put next to the table. That's the landing zone. So all of your, your servers deliver your food to that, your, your silverware goes on there. So they're not hovering over your table. Right. You sort of take things as you need it. And there's that extra kind of buffer. So I like that. I mean, it's it's a very good creative idea. what they're doing. So Carol Chin Culinary Consulting is a firm that has been uh, influencing our industry in ways that are really powerful and impactful. Can you tell us a little bit about what Carol Chin Culinary Consulting is? Yeah, well, so really, I just, um, I moved from New York to Los Angeles about 10 years ago, and I went out on my own and was consulting. So it was just my hanging my shingle out and how I was able to, to do that business. But um, it's really came out of years of working in-house at different um, places in New York doing special events and sort of anything celebrity chef related. Most of the time it was food and wine festivals. Occasionally it was uh, pairing up a brand with a spoke chef or more of a marketing program. But most of the time um, they were sort of these large food and wine festivals all over the country. So I'm trying to think back because I've known you such a long time, but I'm so old I'll forget how we met, but I want to say, didn't we meet at, at one of the um, the events in Los Angeles at Universal Studios? Likely, yeah. I mean, one of the Bon Appetit events for sure. So, um, yeah, I, I was their special events director for ten years, yeah. and um, I think the great thing was it was it was a national job, so I was able to do events in LA and Chicago and Miami and everywhere. So, um, and before that, of course, you were one of the people who made stars shine and sparkle. Uh, working with Jeremiah Tower. And I know that Michael and I talk about you frequently and we talk about Jeremiah on the show frequently because there was a really extraordinary brand of magic that he brings to whatever he magnificent. does. He, he was. <laughs> he is, I should say. He is magnificent. He's currently scuba diving off the coast of Puerto Vallarta. This For oysters. I saw that this morning. For oysters. He's getting his fresh oysters. Yeah. He's just, he's still living the life. Um, yeah, he, um, that was my first job in the business. And um, I have to say, I went in a bit naive. I didn't know, I knew stars. I didn't know much about him. And so it was just pure luck um, that I landed there as my first job. Um, and he really sort of became a mentor and um, what an introduction to the business. So I worked there from 93 to 96. Um, I started as a hostess, but within a couple months, he had fired his assistant. So everyone was like, you should just, you know, go work in the office. He's, you oh, know, there he is. There he is. So handsome devil. Um, and and so I uh, I started working as, as his assistant, which as a chef's assistant, I was, you know, correspondence and a, and a calendar keeping and that kind of thing. But also um, he taught me how to edit recipes. And I remember the first couple of times he's like, here, do these. And I'm like, I'm not even a chef. I don't think I should do it. And he's like, look, if, if you read that and you don't know what I mean, that's good. You know, you'll help me fill in the blanks where I need where I need to be more clear. So, um, so yeah, so I was able to do that. And then quickly it became sort of helping him at special events. And when we had VIPs or, or dignitaries at the restaurant, it was going down to greet Barbara Streisand or Pavarotti or 
the mayor, whoever it was. So, so that's so that was your first my first job. job. Yeah. How long, you, how long did you do that for? Five years. Uh, for three years. So that's sort of like with Robin Leach and I, right? Like Robin just trained me as a journalist. Right? And you remember those days, right? Yeah. So he and and it was sort of like the way these guys very different from today. Sure. That generation very yeah. very different from today, and the way they train you, they train you to be better forever, not just yeah. for them. Where what you see people today, you're like, oh, I got to train this girl, and then it's for for your particular weird quirks, right? These guys were forward thinkers, okay. right? Jeremiah, Robin Leach, they're they're forward. They're like, you know what? I'm gonna her career is now gonna ex expand because of the things that I, it's like kindergarten. You learn everything you can in kindergarten, right? Yeah. Everything you know, you learn from kindergarten. Well, that's what I it sounds like. That's how it worked with Jeremiah. And I know Jeremiah. I've talked to him many times. And every time is a life lesson. Right. Right. right? Every time is a life lesson. Um, and you can't get in. You never want to hang up because you don't know what's going to come next. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I have to say some of my fondest memories were just like after work and opening a glass of, uh, you know, a bottle of wine and, and just the, hearing the stories with the crew after a, a big event. Those um, were the most fun days, Jennifer. The After the big events and after... Um, Wolfgang would have his his Meals on Wheels mm -hmm. events, right? And then everybody would meet, and they'd have the app. They would get through the event, and then you'd have the chef after party. And how fun! Yeah, I mean, you, you can't even put it into words how fun and amazing that really became. Well, and and t let's tell people about if if you're lucky. And, see, I want to go back and say something about what Carol and you were referring to with both Jeremiah and Robin. There's something very appropriate about the words old school. And when we talk about the culinary world, old school will often mean the Escoffier tradition, as Jeremiah wrote about, uh, but but lived and breathed. And there's there's this standard of excellence that mm -hmm. is a lifelong standard of excellence that mm -hmm. is an old school quality that maybe is not as relevant today in its in its manifestations it's unselfish I argue that it's always relevant and maybe one of those things that we need to get back to in this next iteration of, of where we go you know in this path forward one of the conversations has to be where do we go next how do you both and not to turn it on you Michael and interview you both but <laughs> but but I'm really curious how would both of you suggest that there are lessons for the for the very immediate future? from people like Jeremiah Tower and Robin Leach, who are really old school professionals that can inform us about how to go forward, how we go on any path forward, but on this unique path forward at this time when things are so uncertain. What were the lessons would you say that they have to teach us? And I would include, I would include Kerry Simon in that, Carol, right? Because he was very esoteric, right? Very unselfish. Listen, those guys, both of them, both Jeremiah and Robin, have big personalities. They have big personalities. And people could really misread that, right? But they're so unselfish with what, the way they train and what mm -hmm. they do. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe maybe there's something in there that says, oh, I trained him. Or I trained her. I taught him everything he knows. Now he has 12 million readers. <laughs> like, that's a brilliant thing, right? Or Carol, look how successful she is. Jeremiah was like, oh, she, she worked for me first, right? I can see the ego coming in because they are great. That's what they do, right? Let's be realistic. But I think with today's, Carol, how do you feel? I think that today's environment wouldn't phase these guys. They wouldn't freak out. They wouldn't be phased. They would yeah. figure it out. 
No, I think what strikes me, like spending time with Jeremiah and a lot of just whenever he was imparting knowledge, it was just because it was the right thing to do. You right. don't do it because people are watching. You don't do it for Yelp. You don't do it for Instagram likes. You know, he would show us things because that was how it was to be done. It wasn't, um, you know, I think you kind of take away that performative aspect of it. And it's just like, no, you do this when no one's looking. This is how you clean the kitchen every night. You do it because it's how it's done. Um, how you do anything is how you do everything. Yeah. So I think it's just that care and that self, self, uh, I don't know, what is that? Self pride, you know, like you take mm -hmm. pride in the work you do. Um, it's not for someone else to, to, to validate. It's for, you know, it's because you want to do the job well, whether it's hospitality or cooking or, or writing or anything. But Carol, do you see that in chefs of today? I mean, you've had, you've had, and you're intimate, you have intimate relationships. It sounded weird, didn't it, Jennifer? <laughs> I was going to say, like, ooh, that's yeah, how rumors get you're started. You're with a lot of chefs, Carol. No, no, that's you right. work with a lot of people. No, I mean friends. She's friends with a lot of the chefs and the name chefs that we know and that are very public. They're on television. They're doing great things. And believe but me, if it wasn't for Carol, they wouldn't generation. be. Well, yeah, but Carol was, was there from the start, from when they right. were in there. Right. So do you see that same unselfishness? Um, I, I do see it in some. Um, but I, I'm probably am better friends with the people that are that that earlier generation and maybe not the super new newbies that are mm -hmm. that are coming up right now. Um, but even you know I I've seen this the generation after the Jeremiah's that that came up underneath you know that group of after Wolfgang and after um, you know and it, it's it's nice to see them wanting to pass on the knowledge. I work with um, a charity called CCAP, which is Careers Through the Culinary Arts Program. Um, founded in New York by Richard Grassman, but of course now there's there's seven different branches, and we mentor and prepare high school kids in underserved underserved communities for careers in the culinary arts. But so a lot of the so you've got the Jeremiah generation, and then the one ones that worked for him, and then the one the high school students now, and it's nice to see that middle generation mentoring these kids and giving back in that way, and and teaching them this is how you do it, and this is how it's done, and. You know, we we start when they're in high school seniors, really, uh, with these competitions and giving them scholarships and everything. But, you know, we teach them how to shake someone's hand and look them in the eye. We show them, you know, teach them they need to show up on time and 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 with their clean chef code and their chef and their knife roll. And, you know, like these mm -hmm. kids go into culinary school already having been trained with that foundation. Um, so they sort of have a little leg up and it's it's really gratifying to see some of them are now getting jobs in the industry and working at big name restaurants or hotels. So guys, on. I'm going to also point to chefs that are that are sort of young and up and coming. Guys like John Martinez, who worked opening restaurants for Jean George, one of the most generous human and lovely human beings you'll ever meet. Kevin Fink at Emmer and Rye in Austin, Texas, nominated for James Beard Awards this year, doing completely zero waste approaches to sustainability. Again, another lovely kid really generous in, in coming and doing events. And so they are out there. And I think that we're really poised to have great things happen. But this conversation today is about how we can be forward thinking. And five years ago, Carol, you were dreaming big <laughs> of how the industry could look and recognizing that there were dimensions of technology that may come into play in a significant way. Who could have predicted the pandemic? Who could have predicted the rise in the need for 
online services. You created the Bite event. Will you take us back to what led to that and yeah. that launch event? I, I remember clearly I um, was watching, um, I mean, it was reading an interview with Jose Andreas and he was talking about Davos, the annual conference for sort of world leaders um, in, in Switzerland. And he said, why is there no Davos for food? He's like, there are food issues are really affect everything. It's health, it's economy, it's the environment. It's like the biggest challenges facing any nation are really food challenges or food related. And he said, why, when we have these conversations, you know, why aren't chefs at that table? He's like, why is it the secretary of agriculture and this person, but not a chef? You know, like when you're talking about cancer, there's a doctor at the table. He's like, why wouldn't you have chefs at the table? And that kind of struck me. And I'm like, you know, why, why don't we have a Davos for food? So um, kind of at the same time, I had taken a job with an agency called Octagon, which is a sports marketing agency. They really run, you know, kind of the, the sponsorship campaigns you see at the Olympics or the Super Bowl or, you know, NASCAR, things like that. And they wanted to start a culinary division. A lot of their clients were starting to get into the food space and explore. And so they thought we need to you know, have a practice of that. So um, they brought me on to start their culinary division. And in the interview, I remember one of the questions when the president asked me was, was if you could do a food festival anywhere in the country, where would it be? And I said, Silicon Valley. And he was like, that is not what I thought you would, you know, and he was like, I thought you'd say Portland or Austin. I'm like, no, it's like, I think it's so fascinating one, what's happening in the industry. So you've got, you know, these these startups in the Bay Area that are being funded by tech companies. So you have these plant-based proteins, eggless mayo, you've got apps and software, you've got gizmos like sous vide machines and, and 3D printers. All of that was was being kind of incubated and growing in the Bay Area, but also being funded by these these investors, these billionaires and multimillionaires that, you know, made their fortunes in tech, but they were foodies. So they were investing in restaurants and some of these things. And, and then, yeah, uh, but then they start to incubate them and those companies start to be valued like tech companies and run like tech companies. So there was something really interesting there. I said, but what's also interesting is in Silicon Valley, you have this, this area which is really affluent, a lot of money, very educated, but weirdly has no food scene, right? Those are the two things you want when you're looking for a place to open a good restaurant. Um, so it was interesting to kind of look at doing an event there and so the guys were like at octagon were like all right go build it let's see what that looks like and we started like doing the research and, and putting it together and my first call was to jose andreas and so this he had founded world central kitchen this is three years before the hurricane in in puerto rico so at this point the earthquake in haiti had been sort of his largest activation um and he because in haiti they had they could farm and they could fish so they had food they didn't have any power or gas it, the earthquake knocked out that grid and so you had mass people populations of people that had no access to electricity or or, or gas and so he helped install these these solar powered cook stove kitchens and you know with what they could grow and fish they could cook for thousands of people suddenly. So um, he was taking something the actual solar cook stoves I think they retail for like three hundred dollars. But you know, being able to just have that and cook anywhere as long as there's sunshine um, was just revolutionary when they were trying to get Haiti up and going again. So I had already done that and I was just impressed with it. But he also to me embodies the other side of food technology, which is sort of the Nueva Cocina, the liquid nitrogen and the spherification and all those things that you know he's known for in the kitchen. So to me, he was really the perfect chef to partner with on this. Um, so he agreed to be our chef chair and he gave the keynote address 
Um, but the, the event was a one-day conference and then a two-day food festival. Um, and the food festival would look like what you've seen at some of the Bon Appetit events or, or some of the, you know, the Taste of the Nation, like stations and walk around. But the conference was very interesting. And then everything at the food festival had a tech angle. So during the grand tasting, you could try 3D printed sugar or you could try liquid nitrogen yeah. ice cream or, you know, we had a lot of fun with that part. You know, one of the things that's so important in tech is the scalability mm -hmm. and something magical in that confluence had to have occurred to allow Jose to, who is a dear friend to us both, and, and, and no one could be prouder of, of what he's inspiring us all to see and do, but that, that he could take some of those notions of scalability mm -hmm. to go very quickly from a concept to feeding thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions of people. Millions of meals is not an easy thing to do. Yeah, yeah. And just having seen how they organize um, when they are responding to disaster relief, um, one of the first, you know, they started gathering all these best practices every time they went, they would learn something new, they would take it with them. Um, the food truck utilization, they figured that out, like there's these kitchens that are on wheels, let's use those, you know, and being able to invest in existing restaurants and, and food trucks where they're there because those people are out of work and need work, but they're set up to feed people rather than, FEMA flying in, you know, cheese product and uh, canned food and whatever they do. It's like, why not hire the people that do this for a living in this market that know how to source things? And, 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 so, and so literally the partnership model is becoming that, that uh, mechanism by which it's expanding exponentially. A hundred percent. And the other interesting thing they do almost right away is there's a Google doc created of volunteer shifts needs and then they anytime someone's like what can i do to help they just give you the link and it's like figure it out <laughs> it's like but you know people like you can quickly go on the thing and see oh here's the kitchen this is the shifts they need you need a food handler you need just a body you need someone who can you know distribute meals it's like um they've they've been learning as they go but it's just incredible to see how quickly they were able to scale up and and bring that to more people and what's so cool carol is the sort of experience we had from what I'll only describe as before, the only limited experience we had was after 9-11, mm -hmm. when we all kind of as an industry sort of rallied down to ground zero and kept a couple of restaurants going around the clock 24 hours a day for several months to feed the, the workers that needed a meal. Yeah. And needed yeah. a year to listen. But I remember it was interesting, like just being at Bon Appetit and we called, you know, a couple of the chefs that were cooking and said, how can we help? And they were like, we need sandwich bags. We'll call whoever you can, you know, and Glad was one of our advertisers. We'll like call them up. Can you send Ziploc bags or can you send, you know, plastic right. bags? Like immediately, like it's funny, but those are the, you know, just that that instant network of what needs to get to where is, is so, so key. <clears throat> Carol, that's so important then and now because it 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 addresses and highlights our friends in the business. Mm-hmm. If you're in this business, you're my friend. I can call you and say, I need glad bags. <laughs> or I can call my friend who has a friend who has glad. You understand. Yeah. Talk a little bit about what it is about this business that connects us all in that way. I know when people hear at the start of the show that the people that come on are friends of ours. I mean, that's true. We, we have our friends on like you. But, but there's something about how that, describes almost all of us in this business. Can you can you help me explain that to people? I mean, I think people are drawn to this business have an innate 
sense of hospitality and that need to sort of nurture and, and care for people in that way. Um, and I, I remember posting when all the shutdown was happening and, and quarantine was just starting how one of the silver linings or like the happy things for me was seeing chefs at home cooking for their families because they so rarely get to be home and on a night or a weekend or Mother's Day, you know, cooking for their families. Um, so that was maybe one of the, the nice things that came out of this. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of chefs, you know, and the ones who are on TV and the ones who travel around and have empires um, cooking again. And I think um, it's just been really nice to see them reconnect with that kitchen and, and get their hands dirty and, and, um, and just be able to provide those meals. So I, whether it was for first responders or for, or for, you know, people affected. So I think it's been kind of, that's been kind of a nice thing. And I hope it's rekindling, you know, we were talking about reigniting the passion. I mean, I think getting back to basics, getting back in the kitchen is, is probably going to reignite that passion for some of our chef friends. We're going to um, bring our next guest on in just a minute, but before we make this more of a roundtable conversation, I wanted to ask you, you have an uncanny crystal ball. Um, what do you see? What do you see the path forward looking like? Uh, I don't want to give you, you know, tell me what's the timetable for it, but what are some of the macro things, the big picture things that you see that, that are, that are hinting at you of, of what our world might and will look like? Oh man, that's a big one. I mean, I think it's this pandemic has really just exposed a lot of the weaknesses in our food system. Yeah. Um, I think immediately we saw the most vulnerable being the immigrants, the undocumented, um, the farmers, just how fragile, you know, that system was barely holding together. And, you know, we all know how hard it is for restaurants to 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 make a profit, um, yet alone, you know, succeed and, and make a fortune. So so I think that I hope that kind of bringing these issues to the surface and, and suddenly food and getting food became like really important for a lot of people. So, um, you know, who really hadn't thought about that ticket for granted and hadn't thought about it. So I'm hoping that, you know, seeing these issues brought to the front and, and just the struggles um, makes people take uh, those or appreciate those things more. Um, I am encouraged by some of the leadership on, um, on lobbying by the independent restaurant organization and people like Tom Colicchio and Jose that immediately were in there with to their congressional reps and, and senators explaining what they needed from a government standpoint. Um, you know, the, the, the first stimulus package that was passed was just every chef was just left scratching their head. Like I get a payroll loan, but I have to employ people, but I have to pay like, what? <laughs> it's like, you know, so I, I hope this new, this newly revised version is, is better. It gives a longer timeline to pay things back. And, you know, you can't open if you're not allowed to open. So it's right. like, hopefully, hopefully those things will, will help. So, I mean, I, I think it's, I'm grateful. There's so many people addressing it on all these different levels, you know, on the, on the community level, just feeding their neighbors and taking care of first responders and things like that. And, and the farm boxes in CSA is keeping our farmers going to the, the bigger policy level discussions that are happening. I'm just, you know, I hope everyone who kind of took food, the food system for granted um, and just went around their daily lives and just, you know, realize now um, how, how fragile and how, tenuous that system is. Um, 
one of the things that becomes important in this conversation is to recognize that the interconnectedness of us, when we say we're all in this together, it's particularly true of our business. Mm -hmm. And a lot of shortcomings, a lot of flaws, a lot of um, fractures were highlighted. Um, and I think it's important for us to address the good and the bad. And, and this moment in time is in, in a Buddhist tradition. It's this idea that your, that your poison is your medicine. In fact, that, that something really powerful and good will come from this very difficult moment. And, and this moment as difficult as it is, and in the difficult consequences it's having, it's making lots of positive things come from this. You spent a number of years um, at Bon Appetit magazine, and, and we were debating on how to address the news coming out of that part of the food media world today. My next guest, our next guest, uh, Lauren Godin, is in New Orleans, Louisiana, where she has been an influential, classically trained chef and journalist, and my soul sister. <laughs> <laughs> One of the many things that I love about Lauren is that she speaks in unvarnished truth and she's the mother we all need in the room today. <laughs> and she'll just raise her eyes or her eyebrow at times and uh, remind us. But coming back to that idea of doing the right thing that Jeremiah and Robin Leach taught us that you talked about at the beginning of the show, Carol, you know, you do it because it's the right thing to do. I always count on Lauren to be with us to talk about what is the right thing. And she's always, her uh, her moral compass and her uh, business compass are oftentimes uh, exactly what we need to hear. And we had debated on whether to talk about this today, but I'm gonna first start off by welcoming her. And uh, Lauren, Thank do you, you know Carol? Carol, do you know Lauren? Uh, oh, hi. No. Nice to I'm meet so, you. Nice to meet you. I'm so honored. Uh, I was listening very carefully to you and uh, what amazing things you've done. It's uh, <laughs> spectacular, really. And Jeremiah Tower happens to be uh, my idol. And he's the reason I'm in this industry to begin with. Um, mm. He knows that he he gave a talk here when he released a book and I was very fortunate to uh, intro him for this talk. And I shared with him uh, a story that from long ago. And so I too am team Jeremiah um, <laughs> <laughs> and remember very well stars and remember him on uh, early days of PBS and uh, watching him brush uh, a leg of lamb that was spinning on a spit and he was brushing it with a, with a big, huge branch or branches of rosemary dipped in oil. <laughs> and he, and I just went, <gasps> that's what I want to do, you know, and, and uh, just, I love Jeremiah. I, I'm a humongous fan. So I'm almost envious, Carol, <laughs> of your wonderful experience in spending that kind of quality time with um, who I consider to be really the father of it all. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, not to dance around it, but there's a lot going on in food news, Carol. And, and mm -hmm. Bonapetit bon is a magazine that has had a very influential role in America's culinary existence. Mm -hmm. We count on it. I mean, in, in the Barbara Fairchild era, again, one of our very dear friends, and I know you work with her on CCAP as well. She was on with us last week. We were like conspiring after the show to figure out how we can promote CCAP even more because we think a lot of really good things. You want to know where the future is? That's mm. where the future is going to come from. But we want to turn to you and um, 
ask you to help us frame the news of what's going on at uh, Bon App. Yeah, I mean, I it, I don't recognize the the workplace that I'm reading about in some of these accounts. Um, I worked on the business side, so I was in the um, events. I ran events. I was in the marketing side, uh, which at that time was based, or I should say, is based in New York. And editorial formerly was based in Los Angeles, which was a bit unusual, but. When Condé Nast bought Bon Appetit from Nap, along with Arc Digest, they were both based here in LA. Um, but I mean, I was one of three people of color in the LA off in, in the New York office, and I think in LA there were maybe two or three. Um, one African American woman was the test kitchen assistant, um, and it, it just—I don't think I questioned it because it's just kind of like that's what it, it was. Um, I was never—I don't feel treated that way. The income disparity, you know, reading about that, of course, makes me start going like, well, how much was everyone else making? <laughs> I know what I was making. Um, so that, you know, I absolutely could have been. But, you know, all my friends were broke and you know, trying to make it in New York. So it, it didn't feel like it was just me or because it was racial. Um, I, um, I'm really disheartened by, by reading these stories. And um, I was saying uh, to you earlier, you know, it's interesting because the I'd be curious to see what the difference in the demographics are of the readership, the paid readership of the magazine versus who watches the videos of the test kitchen online. I, Cause I feel like those are two very different audiences and not to defend anything that happened at the print magazine, but I, you know, they were maybe catering to a different audience and based on different uh, reader demographic than the reality of who was watching the videos. I think um, that's a really fair statement. Yeah. I mean, really I know fair. what the demographics were when I worked there and it was probably a largely white readership, you know, very affluent, you know, and, and I, when we, when I started in 96, cilantro was probably a really exotic ingredient <laughs> that had, you know, the asterisk, if you can't find cilantro substitute parsley, you know, like one of those kind of, <laughs> it was a different time. So I granted, you know, my, my tenure was a long time ago. So it, it, I, I left in 2005. Um, so it, it's a very different market than what it is now. But, um, but I'm, I, I hope these conversations are, are good and moving it forward. Um, of course, I want to see, you know, inclusion and diversity, but I also, you know, feel a little bit like I can see how they got there because it just, the, the online audience changed so fast compared to who they had been writing for in the print magazine for many, many years. I think the test kitchen became a thing like three years ago. Um, so I, I can see how it got there so fast. Carol, when you were at Bon Appetit, when did the existence and awareness of a category of people called influencers and the notion of influence begin to have a seat at the conversation table. And I ask that because as far as I was concerned, the very magazines themselves were the influencers and the writers in the magazines for several generations were the influencers. When did the people who actually get the clicks and the likes and the traffic. When did that change in terms of everybody's editorial, what should we do point of view, do you think? Well, I mean, so since I left in 2005, that was before Facebook, right? Yeah. So um, it may be, uh, I don't, you guys could probably tell me when it was, I want to say 2007, it was the Facebook, it was the college thing. Right. 
But 2007 was the beginning of Twitter. Twitter, at least mm. here in the South. Twitter okay. was uh, launched in 2007. I was on, me and one other guy here in New Orleans, and he and I were tweeting each other, hey, what are you doing? Hi, what are you doing? And it <laughs> sort of, you know, and it was silly. And then he decided to jump off and I stayed in. So yeah. I've been a social media junkie since 2007. And I've been on line writing blogs for Emerald and it started in 2000. So Emerald really sort of launched that whole web platform. He was using movable type and we weren't allowed to tell people that it was a blog site because people at that time blog was a dirty word right it was an unknown word nobody really even knew what that meant and so we were kind of at the forefront of all of that um writing stories about food and people and interesting i mean emerald really gave us writers free reign to cover whatever we wanted so that's my recollection of tech food tech back then but i i bow to your greater knowledge i guarantee you yeah. No, I was just, I was going to say exactly that. I think when I was at uh, Bon Appetit, it was the age of the celebrity chef. Yeah. So there was no Instagram, there was no Facebook, but the people that were probably looked at and like, you know, moved things were, were opinion, were celebrity chefs. Um, Food Network was a top 10 network, not a lifestyle, like a top 10 network. <laughs> so, you know, it's accelerated so fast, the proliferation of streaming and a number of channels and over the top, you know, offerings and and then social media and these people getting that much power, that's all new and it, it's moved yeah. very fast. Um, I agree. I agree with that. It Lauren, when, when we first met, uh, 2000, 2001, uh, we were podcasting mm -hmm. and nobody had a pod. There was no technology for people to listen to the fact that we were producing this content. And we were going to live events around the country. Carol, we came to your events. We were broadcasting yeah, your events. <laughs> and people would say, what are you doing? And I would explain we're doing it. And, and people would scratch their heads because literally it was it was yet to come. So yeah, these are all yeah, yeah. things that are now really part of the established way that we live in food and with food and about food. Lauren, I want to turn to you about the news coming out of, um, I don't know that we've actually even described can you help me describe for people what is actually going on? The news that we're talking about that there's been a, a change yeah. of the guard, let's say. At yeah, sure. So um, what has happened uh, is social media is doing the thing that it does best, which is uh, sort of exposing the seedy underbelly and giving everybody a voice and a platform, which is both a good and a bad thing. Sometimes, uh, you know what Michelle Obama said, that social media is a great revealer. Um, we learn things about people that we would not necessarily want to know uh, or need to know. Um, and I thought, I think this is interesting. So to answer your question, um, it came to light that uh, Adam Rappaport, the editor of Bon Appetit magazine, had in his past appeared in brownface um, in a costume, a brownface costume, uh, to depict uh, someone of Puerto Rican descent. And uh, his wife had posted it and the picture was sort of buried and then it resurfaced and it got circulated. And there are a lot of really, really angry people, uh, justifiably angry people. It is not a big secret that Mr. Rappaport, uh, from the writer's side, I don't know Carol's side of it, but from the writer's side, not everyone's favorite. And that's kind of a long time coming. I mean, like people have known that for a very long time. Um, that it is now being revealed is, uh, again, a thank you. 
a nod, if you will, to social media. And what has happened as a consequence is that there's an interim um, editor, Amanda Shapiro, who has said, I am only interim. I want to see a person of color at the helm of this publication. Very interesting choice and thing for her to say. And there are photographers, uh, Alex Lau, who have come forward and really just just really speaking their lived experiences. And then it's just sort of this gigantic snowball rolling downhill. Um, and frankly, a really long time coming, to be really honest with you, because uh, it's been very much an old boy network, uh, very cliquish, uh, very unkind. Um, the whole food, writing food media thing. I know that you guys are friends and Jen, you've won a beard award. I am not a fan of the beards um, at all. I think it suffers from the same ills and the same issues that I'm hoping will be, uh, you know, clarified and kind of corrected. Uh, I really am hopeful for that because I remember the day when the beards really meant something. And I think for myself about how excited we all used to get. Um, even how excited we all used to get with the newspaper on Friday when the reviews would come in and I would wake up early in the morning and wait for the newspaper to hit my front door with a bang. And then I'd run out and open the door and grab the paper to see ooh, how many, and in New Orleans, we do how many beans, you know, not stars, it's how many beans. And we would all get excited and we'd all text each other. Oh my gosh, did you see, did you see who got this and who got that? Those days are really gone. And because <laughs> the influencers, nodding back to you, Miss Jen, on that question, have really uh, taken the uh, space by storm. And everybody and anybody has a platform. And well, you also you know, say that there is time. I mean, you used mm -hmm. to, Carol, in, in Bon Appetit, that was a medium lead time publication or a longish lead time publication. Oh, Lauren, you've yeah. worked in news media uh, where a week, two, three, maybe even a month, that would be considered a good amount of time to get a story down. Mm -hmm. That time is so short now, Michael, mm -hmm. even in publishing food and beverage magazine, the timetable has gone like this. Jennifer, we put up 12 stories, at least minimum 12 to 20 stories a day, a day, right? That's the we digital world. We can't keep up. And I'm throwing off 30 or 40 of them, right? And I'm sending them to you, Jennifer, to look at. I'm like, oh, I can't help you, but talk to Jennifer anyway. She's got a beard award. So now I'm going to send it to Lauren because, you know, maybe they'll like it. I think it's so fascinating because the lead time thing that you mentioned, Jen, still exists in a print publication. A couple, I write for a lot of print and that lead time is still a very big deal. Uh, one of my publications I'm writing currently for October uh, issue obsolescence is a real threat. You could spend an entire month working on a story and something could happen. And, and literally the obsolescence of the newsworthiness of that can be evaporated. Jennifer, totally. with, the, with our digital magazine, what do we wait? Like we wait till like the 30th or the 29th of the month. And then we find like this cover. We got this cover this month. It was Beautiful. like the 49th, right? right? Like, can you believe we went from this gorgeousness to this food that's and beverage magazine is going downhill. That's gorgeous, I'm too. Listen, I, I have an argument. Post is uh, maybe not as sartorially splendid as Jeremiah. Oh, I but think he's very splendid. But in the which he is doing his thing, he's going to be the entire generation to the beauty of rosé wine. How can you complain about that? 
Nah, that's true. But that's what I'm saying. That that yeah, came out, and I'm like, we gotta we gotta cover that right now before somebody else does, right? Not that it's such a. Not, I mean, it's not like the old days that Robin was telling with Fleet Street and the guys that worked for Rupert Murdoch and sensationalism, headless woman found in topless bar. But those are, you know, using those techniques, and that's but that enables us to move faster. Now that was also something on being trigger happy, Lauren, right? And I am <laughs> and Carol knows this from all my years of friendship with her. I am extremely trigger happy. So I've learned to calm myself. <laughs> I try. Calm is not a word that one naturally associates with me. Um, but I'm working this, on it. <laughs> this is something we can always look forward to, right? <laughs> yes, but it doesn't can, happen fast enough. <laughs> it, doesn't happen on, it doesn't happen on your timetable, right? Correct. And it is all about me. Um, right. Yeah, it's it is fascinating though because yeah, you can pull the trigger. I I I love all of these generations of um, brilliant people involved in our food and beverage industry. I have loads of room in my heart for every one of them. Post Malone and Jeremiah Tower to me equally beautiful, but I um, because equally passionate, you know, and and equally dived and dialed in, and I think that's really neat. And the the whole thing about digital is that yes, there is this bizarre race to be first, but that seems to be have been taken over by you know I, I listen I say this and it's just not the most generous thing to say, but you know in the world now where we're and openings and closings, I mean if you can find your ass with both hands, you can write about what's open and closed. That doesn't require a food writer. Uh, that that I mean. Any Yelper, no offense, but can do that. Anybody. Lauren, Carol, is it a race to be first or is it a race to be relevant? Ha, ah, Carol. Or, or is it a race? Or is it a race to be correct? Oh, that. I will say the race to be first comes at the expense of being correct. And Absolutely. Yes, correct. I, I have, you know, I was helping Tartine Bakery with their PR last year, and it just would drive me crazy that some publications who shall remain nameless would just, you know, rush to be first and not even get the facts straight. And I'm like, I'm right here. I will check. I will get back to you in a second. If you just give me a chance. And that was really frustrating. And sometimes I would put out the press release. Here's the date. Here's the opening. Here's this. And like, you know, we don't know when it's opening. I'm just like, Oh my God, it's the third thing on the press release. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I, I was it's bemoaning to a writer friend of mine the rise of the listicle. I think a lot oh. of these clickbait. Ooh, that, the driven, listicle. Oh, that God. seems to have gone away for the moment, though. Don't you think, Carol? It seems to have uh, taken a, a backseat. I'm seeing a little more long form in my world. Well, on, on the digital side, it's maybe on the print side, on the digital stuff, it's still the 10 things you must make in the oh, pandemic. Yeah. Here, you know, the four things every sourdough baker must have. It's like all these, <laughs> I stole them getting listicles. <laughs> Gross. I guess I've stopped looking at those things because <laughs> I want to consume food writing of the old world, of the old school. I want somebody who cares and has passion mm. and is putting their hands on the product and, mm. and doing something beautiful <clears throat> with that product. Or even something nasty. It's fine. So I, you know? I have a question for you, you guys. So this is kind of something that I've been ruminating on. So is the answer to replace Adam Rappaport Bon Appetit with with a person of color, you know, who's still going to have to report to Anna Wintour, who's still going to have to be accountable to the Condé Nasties, or yeah. <laughs> is it better to? I mean, should somebody create 
something that's of the people, by the people, for the people. I mean, maybe this is the opportunity. Show, clearly there's demand for it. Like maybe now is the chance for someone to launch something, you know, more relevant to the audience because I feel like you can, sure, you can try to force change on people, but it's also like, at the end of the day, it's still gonna be Condé Nast, you know? And I say that as someone who worked there for 10 years, like maybe that's not the right answer or the best I agree. answer. Carol, clarify I agree. this for me a little bit. Are we talking about turning to somebody like, like David Chang and Peter Meehan and reviving their editorial point of view at Lucky Peach as Bon Appetit? Or do we, do we try and maintain that brand identity and editorial point of view that always was the Bon Appetit point of view? and have someone come and bring Bon Appetit into the future? Or do you just really completely reimagine it? Which are you asking? Well, no, I'm saying, I, I don't know if you really can force something like Bon Appetit. Bon Appetit has been around since the forties, I think. Uh, I don't know if you can ch force that change on something that, that old of an institution. Are you better mm -hmm. off taking something, you know, like you look at, at Cherry Bomb, like when Carrie was looking around for a, a you know, a culinary publication with a women's point of view, like wasn't out there. So rather than trying to force Bon Appetit to be it, like, is it, you know, was she better served by just creating Cherry Bomb and making her right. own thing? Like, so yes, you know, yeah. we want people of color's voices heard. We want to not be ethnic food. We want, you know, like authenticity and, and all these things, but maybe it's not, maybe Bon Appetit is not the best vehicle for that. Maybe, right. maybe Bon Appetit has served its purpose. Yeah. You know, much in the way that Gourmet has. I, I have to say, I'm with Carol. I think it's time for new. And I, I certainly my, do not mean to suggest the decimation of anyone's job or employment, because that's, but as a theoretical question, as a hypothet, I believe it's time mm -hmm. to say au revoir, bon appetit. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's my personal Jennifer, opinion. what did you start? Oh my God. No, well, I, sorry. I, I think this is a critically important conversation because when you consider the role that magazines like Bon Appetit played in our fur, food firmament over the last decades, and we're looking at how valuable having that legacy of editorial credibility, because the standard was so high under the Barbara Fairchild um, editorial mm -hmm. term, you have to imagine what it means to take we're living in revolutionary times for sure. And the questioning of everything is happening and it's right to question. If we're questioning, we have to assign value or at least an evaluative measure to all of the dimensions of something other than just that one note that it has history or the one note that it has to also be digital or the one consideration that it also has to be video or the one note that we really are long overdue for someone of color to be at the helm or that one point of view that it can only be about restaurants or home cooks or you see where we're going. There's just so much to consider that it really should. And for everything in the breadth of all our evaluations for what comes next, having really wise people like you guys at the table saying, what, what should we be thinking about and what we choose to take forward with us? I mean, that's why we're doing this today. What are the things, rather than throwing the whole thing out, what are the things that are worth saving for it? Because in fact, we've lost some of our favorite legacy magazines in the category. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we did. We did. I don't know how Carol feels about it, but it's interesting because I had this conversation with one of the publications for whom I write currently about the evolution of this pub, the publication, that it served its beautiful purpose, right? So, and it's done it's a good thing. How do we then take it forward, make it relevant? So you're asking that same question with regard to Bon Appetit, right? Is, is there a way to take it forward and make it relevant? I would say in the current guise that it is in, no. Right. I, but I do believe that the hope is the return. I think you were talking about this earlier of, you know, that whole hospitality, the old world hospitality, fine dining, the back in the kitchen. Carol mentioned the chefs cooking again. That made my uh, my stomach sink. They should always be in their kitchens and cooking. I, If you're not in your restaurant, what the hell are you doing? Um, I don't get it. Now I You've understand during Vegas, this time. Lauren, yeah. have you never been to have you never been to Vegas? Because the chefs don't cook in Vegas. Well, <laughs> no, that's not true. Is what I have to say we about that. Yes, unless you're that. with Carol Chin, unless you're with Carol Chin and it was Jet Tila, <laughs> he would cook in Vegas. Yeah, and, and you asked about David Chang, and I'm I'm here to tell you. No, no. The angry bro, no. No more angry people. No. Let, let, let's let them move on into the sunset. And let's bring back in people who love the culinary arts, love the craft of cooking, love the craft of writing about food, the experience of it. Not the me, me, me. Look what I ate. I ate sushi. It was very ricey or, uh, you know, I mean, if I have to read one more, you know, food thing that, you know, goes crazy or uses phraseology like on point, I don't even know what that means. I'm always saying on point, on the point, on the top of your head. What point is it? I don't get it. So I want, I would like a return to uh, a place of heart, the soul and passion with regard to food, whether it is on the digital world or whether it is in the print world, frankly. And I would like to see uh, restaurants doing true philanthropy or at least being transparent when they are getting money from World Central Kitchen, for instance, which is fabulous and saving restaurants who are doing nothing do not position yourself like you are feeding the front line. You're being paid to feed the front line and there's beauty in that. And it's okay to say that. I, I, I want us all just to take a breath and a step back and just be a little more conscious. And I'm with Carol about this idea of replacing the editor with a person of color. What Does that solve a problem? I, I don't know. I'm not sure. So, so I think, I'm, but I'm a little bit maybe um, in a different place. So I, I'm not advocating that we trash Bon Appetit and it goes on the, you know, goes away. Cause I actually, so I took a look at the magazine, which I have to admit, I probably have not looked at for a year about. Um, and I, I looked at the current issue and it was much more diverse in the coverage than I actually would have thought given all the complaining. So the, there was an article about Juneteenth that highlighted three different African-American pitmasters. There was an article, an op-ed by Rox, Roxanne Gay. There was a, um, another highlight of a young African-American chef and another young um, Asian chef from Shanghai. So I think I, it, it actually was already such a different magazine from the one I worked at 15 years ago. Um, and so I don't, I don't think it's, you know, trash and it goes away, but I'm just saying it, it may not be trying to force change on a magazine that's 60 years old may not be the, the best answer, answer to some mm -hmm. of the 
questions or the or the desires or the that we want now. Issues. Yeah, like I think maybe we're better off just like we recreate something new, like I said, of the people, by the people, for the people, rather than trying to make something what it's not. Um, and you know that's changing on its own pace, and hopefully it continues to change, and they will, you know, they will continue to change. Um, I, I don't think print is dead. I don't think it should go away. I just, I'm just questioning whether there's a better vehicle or path to get to where we want to go. But I, their I change, their change mm -hmm. is just, just to be politically correct, right? So it's like, all right, well, we had these horrible things said about us. Now we're going to put a person of color in charge. Well, like what? Right. Well, what? That doesn't. That's just their. That's their solution to the problem, which makes the problem worse. Mm -hmm. Period. I, 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 Carol, I, I, pull, I so picked up. Huffing and puffing. Look at that. Well, because it's difficult because what Carol says is correct. Mm -hmm. I, I, it's something with which I wholeheartedly agree. And then there's a part of me that's a little bit unnerved. The Juneteenth thing, a lot of buzz on the internet about that. Um, I looked at the current issue. I'm one of those people that gets the issues every month. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm one of those goofballs. I read everything. And uh, I love Roxanne Gay um, I, as a voice, as a writer. I mean, her writing voice is just incredible. I am a huge fan. Um, and I, I have been less than impressed with the flash and pomp of the recent um, uh, editions. And I almost questioned whether or not some of that coverage was in an effort to uh, demonstrate a diversity that doesn't really exist, almost like a false front, but I don't know that. I just question it. Only I'm a, a really serious skeptic, so I may not be the best person in to ask that. Well, and you're also working in New Orleans and you're working in a city that has had its share of um, tension smoke. and crisis. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a flashpoint in the food media in New Orleans that may not exist in another city. And that's why we turn to you because you are so close to the spirit and the soul of how close food is at the heart of a community. And there are a few cities around the country that live in food the way New Orleans does. And I mean, we can kind of all acknowledge that. So so it's a, it's a real part and parcel of the place. Um, you know, New York is a lot of things. It's, you know, business and finance and entertainment, Los Angeles, again, you know, entertainment. But, but, but New Orleans really has a hundreds years history well, we're also terribly xenophobic here. I mean, ridiculously xenophobic, uh, you know, really to a fault. And um, and there really is still that old Southern, you know, boys network that runs the shoe and really does. Sorry, but they do. And it, it's unfortunate, you know, and then remember that all of the uh, editorial comes out of Alabama, a lot of it, right, from Birmingham. So we have the whole Southern thing that folds into it as well, and the history associated therewith. Uh, we, you know, we have, uh, but we do our food. We're one of the few places that has its own true regional food culture, mm -hmm. and um, and it is complicated. And we are a messy place. Uh, I, that would be uh, short-sighted for me to say otherwise. We're very, it's very messy. But, oh, and I mean, we're in Orleans Parish, it's really scary because we're just now going to phase two, which means a 50% uh, in, in oh, restaurants can only open at 50% capacity. Mm -hmm. And it means total capacity, which means the number of people uh, under the roof per the fire marshal, which means 
guests and staff, right? Mm. Right. If you think about it, that's what it really means. Are they enforcing that? But that's what it means when they say 50% of the total capacity. And that is really challenging because you can't open, you can't, it's not a sustainable model. They can't make any money. It's ridiculous. They're trying all these things. They're throwing spaghetti at the wall. And I am scared for my restaurant friends. Mm -hmm. I'm scared for my chef friends. And we writers, you know, we'll find something cool to write about. If you can't find something cool to write about, you need to maybe consider another profession because there's lots of cool stuff to write about. But I am very worried about um, our, our restaurant people and our chefs, uh, mm-hmm. certainly here in New Orleans and everywhere, to be honest. <laughs> um, before we wrap this up today, I, I do want to say thank you to you all for, for spending this time and having a, having a you know, challenging conversation in these challenging times. But as leaders in the industry, I turn to you and say, you know, this is, this is what comes, you know, to whom much is given, much will be expected. And, and um, in that vein, I'm going to ask you about, about, again, I I threw this at Carol and and asked her where she thought things were going to go. You raised the issue of mandating 50% capacity in restaurants, which to my mind is a mandate to fail. No, no operation can operate with a mandate that says, if you, if you do anything other than this, like this, like it's been, you won't sustain yourself into success and, and thriving. What did, to both of you in the things that you've seen, if the mandate is that you can only open to 50%, what are things that operators can do and think about to augment the operations to survive? More- Carol, you want to go first? <laughs> I mean, uh, we were when we talked earlier. We were saying in Los Angeles, um, they've really just started that, um, and um, there's a handful of places open, and in, in you know a couple more each day. So it's it's still kind of TBD. I think people are. It's kind of the grand experiment to see if between a combination of takeout and to go and delivery and 50% dine in, if they can make it. Um, but I also was sort of shocked to see how quickly people streamed back out to the Disney store in Orlando or, you know, when I read that Carnival cruise tickets were selling 40% higher than last year, August, you know, I just, it's unbelievable to me. So I think there's a number of people that are just stir crazy and ready to, you know, chomping at the bit to get out there. Um, So I don't know what's going to happen. It's the grand experiment to see if these guys can make it. I'm, shared Lauren's concern. You know, I'm just deeply worried for our industry. Um, I think the smart operators are going to figure it out. Um, and I'm hoping with the new CARES Act Part 2 and, and some other measures that they're able to kind of hang on. Um, but it's going to be a long, ugly road for all of them. It's Carol, are we going to stop going out to eat? I don't think so. I mean, I'm like I said, people are are venturing back out. Like, um, I don't know if you read in the LA Times just the article about one restaurant, and I think they said normally for brunch they do three twenty covers. This last weekend they opened and they did fifty eight because they're hundred percent reservation only, you know, percent <laughs> capacity, and and da da da, and it was the first weekend back, and you know, it's like, can you make it on that? So so 
<laughs> so Carol, I think uh, to add on to that um, here, we have places that were doing crazy brunch numbers. I think of the commander's palaces of the world, sure. right? Who are now uh, have partnered with gold belly. And mm -hmm. so there's that income stream that they have developed for themselves, but they're fortunate to be able to do so. Uh, those larger operations and, and that, are is that's a wonderful thing that they have available to them to add to the mix while they can't be open because if you can imagine if 325 covers and they only did 58 can you imagine what commander's palace is i mean yeah holy yeah. smoke okay without and my little parade with my umbrella and yeah <laughs> yeah no, and it's it's very 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 scary so uh you asked the question jennifer are, pe are people going to go dine out and i would say we are going to be changing very dramatically the way we go dine out. I write about I write about restaurants and dining out for a living and I'm not going right now. And that's because I have a very strong feeling about the word restaurant and its heritage and the word to restore and that's what it means. And I don't find it restorative in a 50% six foot table apart masked uh, environment. No, I, I mean, it, I'm it's, sorry if I curse, but that's feeding. just bullshit. I can't yeah. even, I can't handle that. Me. Restless people, yes, Carol, right on the money. People are super restless to get out there. Uh, and I get that. No. But no, I'm in the same boat with you. I have not rushed out either. No. And that's the thing. You and I do this for a living and we're not rushing out. I think that that's something people should be thinking about, you know, and then at the same time, it just breaks my heart because all I want to do is help my restaurant friends and family and uh, with all my heart and soul. So I do, I, I try as best I can to do what I can to help. Um, and unfortunately uh, we're stymied by the phasing and in Orleans parish where our phasing is even more constricted than it is statewide because our mayor has made decisions that she's made, whatever they may be. And it is impossible. And I were, I know a lot of restaurants that are not coming back, that are permanently gone. Um, and very few, it's, oh, oh my goodness. Um, I, I, I cry tears every day. I mean, like, this is going to make me cry right now. Um, yeah. Nah. <laughs> who we are. Yeah. It, well, and, it's just gut-wrenching when you know that the people, when they open these restaurants, their vision and their passion and their commitment to the industry and, and the love that they feel and have for it, and they're talking about their livelihood and their business and all of it being dashed, what the hell are they supposed to do now? Yeah. And, and no. by the way, we all know that nobody gets into this business to get rich. Oh, for right. crying out loud. Of course you, not. You do it because you have to do it. Or because, because you love you it are. enough. And you want to, and you love it, and you want to do it. I, I think it is so scary. And I, my big advice, I, I tell all my, I work with a lot of restaurants too, consulting, and I tell them, no free meals, no, <laughs> not even no. me, <laughs> no, not never me. I mean, oh my gosh, they will. Oh no, mm, never me, but definitely not to influencers. What does that even mean? Not, I don't care if it's. Adam Rappaport or Bill Addison or the Queen of England, no, no freebies because you're working your tush off for that money. Uh, you know, you had to go shopping, you had to buy those groceries, you have bills to pay, and so does your staff. Nobody can afford that. And this whole gift card thing, um, 
it sounds like a great idea to buy gift cards, but here's the problem. Think back to Groupon uh, when everyone was buying their Groupons. And then what would happen is your Groupon would end and then everyone would rush in with their Groupon coupon. And now a restaurant is doing no cash business. Yeah. Right. All they're doing is get, taking in the coupons. This is disastrous. And it is also the same mentality. So if you want to donate to the restaurant to give them money, great. Buy your gift card and then put it in the, you know, recycle bin, the, you know, the shredder or, you know, do something else with it. It's a beautiful idea. But if everybody then when all is said and done comes in with their cards, their gift cards, those restaurants will have no cash flow. Boo, not going to work. So uh, I'm with, I guess it's TBD to coin what Carol said, TBD, but I'm genuinely concerned and I have no answers. Carol, I, I have, I meant to ask you this before. Was there anything that came out of the original Bite Festival that was like a glimpse into the future that you've thought about in the last couple of months and said, you know, somebody said something about this at Bite and it was very prescient. Did anything prescient come out of Bite that we're seeing maybe need to be re-explored today? So one of the, um, the topics for the conference was um, dealing with food waste. And um, well, yeah, so I guess out of the conference, several of the topics were very timely, but one of them was about food waste and, and sort of um, reclaiming ugly produce and things like that and making sure that that didn't go to waste. Um, Jose had connected me with one of his mentors, the gentleman who founded DC Central Kitchen, who um, also is on the board of World Central Kitchen with him. And you know, they talked about rescuing food, hiring people within the community to prepare that food. And then the food, they did two things. One was purely donations. So it would go out to senior centers or to um, after school programs or, or you know, any shelters that needed food, but also um, a for-profit arm that would sell it to schools or hospitals or places where they were, you know, kind of um, institutions. Tasks. Yeah. Where they had the budget and had to mm -hmm. feed people at a healthy meal and blah, blah, blah. And so um, that model, you know, like watching him sort of activate these world central kitchens, like you see a lot of the meals that they're producing are either plant forward or, or, you know, vegan. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that's, he's still putting that into practice every day and, and re rescuing food. And the other thing was about food desert. So Roy Choi, um, who started, of course, the Kogi food truck, but then now has restaurants in Vegas and, and here in LA. Um, and he uh, talked about using this, uh, this concept of trucks and to be able to bring food to food deserts and, um, and sort of making sure that those neighborhoods and communities didn't get lost. And so that's also come out, you know, as, as sort of a need in, in this thing because supermarkets became the only place you could go. And it's like if these markets don't have great produce or you're going to the bodega for your you know, food, it's it's an issue. So um, I think, you know, the people that were leading that were coming to speak about leading at Bite are still out there leading right now. Nice to see. That's really we cool. Have, uh, I, I volunteer for this organization called Borderlands Produce and it's Produce on Wheels Without Waste. We talked about it last week with mm -hmm. some guys from the packaging industry in California and the produce industry. And literally the innovations that are coming in the packaging industry are letting produce have an extra hour, six, 24 hours of life. And that literally can be the difference between going to the landfill and going to the soup bowl. And somebody could go from hungry to well-fed 
uh, because of these kinds of things and because these organizations, and again, in Nogales, Arizona, which is right on the border, billions of dollars a year in produce comes through that port and literally, quite literally, these truckloads are rescued from landfills by Yolanda Soto and her crew and, and distributed in communities throughout the state. And it allows someone to come and get 70 pounds of fresh produce. And it may be a peach with a pimple, but it's still a perfect. <laughs> What's better than a peach with a pimple? Well, listen, if you're hungry, I'm happy to say I would be very grateful for any peach when I'm hungry. And, and But the beauty of this is it's it's wonderful produce. It's fresh cucumbers from companies like Eurofresh or the equivalent of the the beautiful produce we get and and you get 70 pounds of produce for 12 bucks and if you are trying to get by this is essential it's absolutely essential and so you know these are the things i'm hopeful about getting more of the food community involved on multiple layers i think historically most most of us have been in sort of like one silo and i think the future is going to call for us to be sort of pan productive mm-hmm. Amen. Amen to Amen, that. Amen, Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer, preach. And she worked in the word peach multiple times. Did you notice Did you that? hear that? So earlier, Lauren. But I didn't Jen- say conviviality. Jen- Jen- Jennifer showed us a peach. I saw. And I said, and I said I'm going to say peach as much as I can today. And I said, <laughs> Carol looked at me funny, and I decided not to. I, no, no, I did not. There was no look. But Jennifer said that maybe seven or eight times throughout this program. Peach, 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 peach. And her favorite you drink word, every time you say peach. Yeah, well, cross fingers for the peach Three. industry in Louisiana because we only have one commercial grower left of our beautiful rusted peaches. And, oh, uh, wow. Yeah. And uh, that one might be uh, au revoir as well. So because I'm glad you have your beautiful peach. Because of the storm or because of the economy? Neither, uh, because the uh, trees got the peach tree version of phloxera. Oh, no. Yeah, and so and because it was a somewhat of a dying industry, so the rust and red peach uh, is a is a, you know, it's a miraculous thing, and unfortunately, um, not not too much available. I think one grower left is all I know, and then our peach season is in July. But right now we celebrate the Alabama peaches, the Chilton counties. So at least we have that, and at least it's regional. She's very knowledge. That Lauren, she's quite a peach. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) Lauren is a a classically trained chef as well. Do you have a favorite grab-a-pencil peach recipe you can share with us before we go? Is there something you're doing right now? No, it's. I have to tell you, I'm an old school Jewish girl. We grew up eating those ridiculous canned cling peaches mm. on a thick iceberg lettuce with cottage mm. cheese, just vile. Mm. Right. I have one. Hungry, I have one. <laughs> Yay! Let's okay. let Carol go it, with that. It, of course, they, Carol. Well, it was like a peach cobbler, but the topping was sesame with tahini. Oh, oh who yeah. knew sesame and peach went so well together? Ooh, yeah. Whoa! Yeah, I love that. that. Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> I'm going to think the soup. Peaches and crab is a salad here that we actually do. I heard you talking earlier about peaches and tomatoes. We do peaches, watermelon, and crab meat. Oh, yum. And mint. The, um, and I'll, I'll do this next week because they're going to come in in more abundance. But I also do um, a dessert with uh, peaches, a tiny amount of brown sugar, and chiffonade of basil. Yeah. Basil yum. With That's, peach and basil is just a classic. So, yeah. Ladies, <laughs> friends, 
Thank you so much. And thank you. Please let us know how we can be helpful and useful in telling the stories that you see coming um, in your silos and in your communities. And, and let us know how we can continue the conversation to be of service to our and, friends. And peachy. And peachy. <laughs> don't, don't. Ladies, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. On the World Wide Web. Wow, huh? Uh, I, I know, right? What about that? Carol Chen, huh? She's, we had two barrels. That is a double barreled, fantastic yes. show today. Don't you love Double Lauren? Barrel. Love Lauren. Now I have to hire her. You told me, you sent her to me, and I was like, I'm not hiring her. Now I got yeah. her because I like her. She's the best in the business. I yeah, love she, her. Love, she love, is love so her. knowledgeable oh my and God. so poignant. And I love the way she looks at things in such a positive manner, not She's realistic. all about the unvarnished truth. She is all about the unvarnished she's truth, the which, is what, listen, which is what we're about. She's the voice on my shoulder saying, you know, unvarnished truth. She makes me look at the world. She does? Like it should be looked at. You're the voice on my shoulder. That's all. I'm just yeah. saying you're the voice on my shoulder. All right, so we'll see you tomorrow. We got something good tomorrow. What do we got? Oh, tomorrow. We got a great show tomorrow. Do you remember when Chef Carrie Simon was on Iron Chef on of the course. Food Network? Of course. Well, one of my all-time favorite regular judges on Iron Chef, Kareem Bakum, who was mm -hmm. uh, known for KB Network News. And one mm -hmm. of she, I think she has such a great palate. She's a global point of view about food she's knowledgeable she's all right. experienced all and right don't ruin it Shh. don't tell people let's let them get excited hush little baby i'm gonna go eat my peach i love it when and you I, eat your peach and i will oh, say what, what? oh what happened we didn't we didn't even say goodbye and there it was they're, no, they're cutting no. us off they're cutting us off so support your local uh restaurants in any way you can and please when you get home today Hug your kids and count your blessings. Can they eat their peaches too? And eat some peaches. They're good right now. That's right.